0: Three, two, one. Vision is the ability to see potential in what others overlook. It helps teams see around the corner to take on the unexpected and build futures others could never imagine. We explore that horizon on Venture the World today with our guest Barbara Iyai, partner at Unicorn Growth Capital, scion of a banking family, JP Morgan Investment Banking alumni, pioneering team member, and queen of Africa's first SPAC otherwise known as Special Purpose Acquisition Company, Atlas Mara. Barbara shares the visions she's been drawn to in her career, the ones founders must have before she invests, and how she's building on her own vision in the fintech-focused fund, Unicorn Growth Capital. If you've ever wanted to learn about SPACs, or how to transition from investment banking to venture building, or to understand Africa's market for growth capital, this episode is for you. After the show, Please visit VentureTheWorld.com or Africa.BusinessInsider.com to learn more about Barbara and our other guests. This episode of Venture the World is made in partnership with Business Insider Africa, the leading Pan-African innovative business news provider targeting aspirational business leaders and featuring the latest innovation, technology, and business news from Africa, alongside features on lifestyle, markets, and more verticals. We are really honored to have today's guests on Venture the World. Today, we welcome Barbara Yai. She started her career as an investment banker at J.P. Morgan in New York City, to then move on to become a founding member of Atlas Mara, a London stock exchange listed special purpose acquisition company, structuring a landmark portfolio of banking companies across Africa. And then she moved on to launching Unicorn Capital. She's really an understated legend in the making. Today, our team at Venture the World, myself,
1: and Mark, welcome Barbara Iyayi to the show.
0: So thank you for joining us.
2: Sure, thanks for having me.
1: I'll start with the first question. I think it's interesting for our listeners to get a background of your career. Obviously we can't go through the full 17 year career, but some of the highlights. So can you tell us more about what led you to found Unicorn Capital? And can you tell us a bit more about what Unicorn Capital invests in?
2: Yeah, sure. So my background is primarily in finance. I've been very excited about using financial services as a tool for empowerment. I grew up in Nigeria. My parents were entrepreneurs. My dad was a banker. I built several banks in Nigeria. And so I watched the importance of financial services and business as a form of social good and impact with the people that he impacted and over the years. And so for me, I always knew that I I wanted to go into financial services. I just was always passionate about innovation at the same time. So I while I studied engineering um, in college and I did technology work in, in several banks in, in, in at J.P. Morgan in New York, finance was always really my main sort of my my main career. And for me, I knew that entrepreneurship had to be involved in that somewhere. So when I left, uh, when I was approached by Bob Diamond to join Atlas Marr as as part of the the first few employees, it was really hard for me to say no. I really wanted to say no because I was ingrained in being part of the corporate world and being on Wall Street and having that path to get to different levels in, in my career and get promoted. But I knew that I had entrepreneurship in me and I wanted to do something impactful around financial services in Africa. And that experience where we built a platform from scratch, essentially leveraging capital that we raised from investors that never invested in Africa, but allowed me to really do everything from investing in companies, banks across Africa, building them from scratch. I applied for a banking license in Rwanda. I hired a management team. I did the first Banking M&A in Rwanda with the central bank, all those experiences, as well as raising capital on the gold co level, as well as on the portfolio company level. Plus my experience around fintech was really where, what led me to do what I'm doing right now. I wanted to essentially do the same thing that I did in Atlas Mara, where we built a platform that was diversified, integrated, synergistic, and I really wanted it to be tech-driven. So Unicorn Capital, where I am right now, is really leveraging that idea of building a diversified, synergistic platform of fintech companies across Africa that can really make an impact in financial services in Africa. What we're going to be doing differently is we're really going to be focused on financial services innovation, companies that are going up the value chain. We have moved beyond fintech being about payments and and lending. We've moved into fintech being more about financial services. How do we do more with respect to insurance? How do we do more with respect to SME financing, supply chain financing? FinTech to me is, is everywhere. It's not just a sector. It's actually something that enables sectors. And so companies that are participating in any digital ecosystem can leverage financial services through FinTech. And data is really going to be what's going to drive the innovations that come out of FinTech. And so all of this together, these are the type of companies that we're going to build and put in our platform and create a lot of synergies with the companies in the platform. And that's really the premise of Unicorn Capital.
0: I want to double click on some of the things you just said, which were really amazing. Here's Bob Diamond. He's the former head of a major UK investment banking platform. And he's moved on to his next thing. And he reaches out to you. How does he know that you are open to the opportunity? And what makes you decide that this new venture that he's saying is the right time to move?
2: So first of all, Bob Diamond didn't like directly reach out. Um, But fundamentally, I think it was very hard for me, to be honest, Chinidu. I didn't want to leave J.P. Morgan. I really was doing really well in my career. But I think I was frustrated. And I think we all have this thing in us where we're not feeling like we're living up to our true potential. And I think what I loved about Bob Diamond was the vision of what he had for the business. I I didn't know whether he could execute on that vision. I didn't know whether it was going to work, but I just was obsessed with the vision. The ability to go out and raise capital from investors that didn't know what Africa was, to focus on financial services a key sector that's just fundamentally broken and underpenetrated in Africa, to get a whole bunch of really smart people in to really go after this vision that was really what it was for me. I remember I called Arnold Ekbe, who used to be the chairman of Echo Bank, And I asked him, I said, look, I really don't know how to make this decision. What do you think I should do? If you say yes, I'll do it. And he was like, you need to do it. And that's really what it was. I just, I did it because he said I, I should do it. But more importantly, he had run Echo Bank, which is one of the largest Pan-African banks in Africa. And I wanted to know, is this going to make sense? Is this going to work? And he said, this can work. The vision makes sense. This is going to make a mark around Africa for these investors that have never invested in Africa. We need to do this. And so for me, I felt like this was bigger than me. And that's why I, I joined.
0: Okay. So you've taken a very untraditional route, launching Unicorn Capital. You started out and you're no stranger to these very large deals. And then you took a role at a startup and you helped them become a unicorn. So what has drawn you into the Africa space that makes it so attractive? I know that you had the time with Atlas MAR. Can you fill us in And so, what has changed over time that you really want to go back into investing in Africa?
2: Yeah, that's a great point because a lot of entrepreneurs go through a lot in Africa. So there's a lot of times where you're just like, is this worth it? And what takes me back to Africa is just fundamentally innovation, right? Africa is a hotbed for innovation. That's what people don't seem to realize. The environment in Africa is, every challenge is an opportunity. It's just a big playing field for you to be able to do as much as you can do. And the impact that you can make is just greater. And so what I've seen over the years is that with Atlas Mar, my biggest thing was, how do we make this a tech-driven company? Um, And the challenge I felt, especially back in 2015, 2016, was that we still had a traditional mindset to banking and to financial services. People were still opposed to going into these lower income segments of the market. They really wanted to just stay in the higher income segments of the market. And so they weren't really ready to really build their business models in a way that made sense for that segment. No
0: consumer banking, you mean no consumer lending.
2: Exactly, but yeah, you can't say that you want to capitalize on the high growth segment of the market and you're not ready to do things like build dropable platforms that allows you to reach these consumers, allows you to lend to them, allows you to provide financial services to them. You have to have that way of thinking, otherwise you're just not going to capitalize on that market. And with that frustration that I felt in Atlas Mar, I took that into venture capital because I saw there were several founders that would approach me when I was in Atlas Mar. Some of them are obviously big companies now and they've raised their series B now, but they wanted partnerships with banks because they wanted that distribution base that they just did not have. And so I took a lot of my frustrations around not being able to really drive home this concept around innovation in Atlas Mar into venture capital, where I was working with founders that were being innovative and they were doing innovative things. And me, investing in them allowed me to sit on their boards, work with them, help them scale. They wanted to get into different countries. They wanted to get access to regulators, to get access to banks. And so I brought that to the table. But what I noticed was that, and and this is, people might get upset when I say this, but I noticed that a lot of these founders struggle with making money, right? So we're really good at creating wonderful technology products and services. Fundamentally, in Africa, I find that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with how to make money. I still go to some forums and I see startups, and when I say, okay, what's your revenue model? I'm seeing things like advertising or airtime top up. (laughs) And I'm just like, this is not sustainable. So there was just this big gap around, business models. Technology was there, but the innovation around business models. And then I started realizing that a lot of these business models weren't incorporating financial services. And and I realized that was really hampering people from growing, right? Pharmaceutical sales sales supply chain company will will speak to me and they'll say, we want to help hospitals get the right pharmaceuticals and and all of that. And I said, the hospitals can't afford to buy your products and services. So how are you going to help them? get the financing, and then it opens up this conversation around, okay, why not advance them credit? Why not think about um, holding their inventory or whatever, but you get to charge a fee, and that becomes very lucrative, a very lucrative business for you. And then I see that even in education. I see that in agriculture. I saw that in so many places, even beyond the traditional fintech companies, and I felt that was what was lacking. A lot of companies, technology companies, they struggle with business model innovation, and they struggle with how do we leverage this big gap in the market, which is around financial services? And then also, a lot of these companies, especially when they get above their Series A, they're thinking, how can I scale across Africa? How can I go to different regions? And from my experience, East Africa is very different from West Africa and very different from South Africa. And all these regions have their different dynamics. So a lot of startups that are trying to grow struggle with that um, and make a lot of mistakes. And so I felt like, It was important that there was still a huge gap. Africa just started, raised only $2 billion of VC funding in 2019. That's really low. And a lot of companies are still struggling for growth capital. Like they get seed money, they make a million dollars in revenue. They're trying to get to 5 million. They're trying to get to 10 and they need capital for that. And that's where they struggle. And so I felt like the opportunity was to invest in these growth stage companies that are at their late stage. They've made their business models work. They figured it out. But they need that growth capital to really go into other markets, to expand into other products and services, to expand their ecosystems. And we need a more capital from local investors because that capital, 5 million, 10 million plus, that's coming from the TPGs, the Goldmans, all these international funds. That's not coming from local funds. That's not coming from funds with people who understand the local environment. And so there needs to be more of these late stage venture capital funds that are funding these companies have figured it out to grow and to really scale into other segments. That's why Unicorn Capital and why I've decided to go back into investing in that part of the market.
1: And seeing that part of the market, knowing that you need both early stage investors and later stage investors that are hyper localized, and with your background of having worked with many African business leaders, bankers, and entrepreneurs, and startup founders, in order to invest in companies that sort of can get the early stage capital, but then actually grow, make money, and move into the later stage capital, what are some of the common strengths that you look for in founders?
2: I think the biggest thing is your vision, right? What are you trying to build? And how big is this problem that you're trying to solve? I still see a lot of startups in Africa that are so myopic. They, they want to do something and it's solving a smaller problem. And they're not thinking big. And they're not thinking about how this is going to be bigger in the grand scheme of the market. They're just focused on, on that so one small solution. And they're not thinking about the bigger picture.
0: And when you say market, is it just a geography or are you also talking about the service?
2: Geography is is just one thing. And and to me, geography is not really, when I think about the problem to, to be solved, I think about the problem being a large problem across the board, a fundamental problem that most people are dealing with, most businesses or most consumers are dealing with. And that should essentially cut across all geographies, but it's how to solve that problem in a way that is competitive, in a way that is innovative and also disruptive to yourself. So I look for founders that are being disruptive. They're saying to themselves, how do we open up our services for people to plug into? How do I build businesses that our competitors can use? How do we become agile so that we can innovate and we can pivot really quickly? How do we think about innovating on our business model? One of the reasons why I invested in a SaaS company in Nigeria is because the business model was actually the innovation, right? They're actually building a payments platform that is going to be completely software as a service. So typically when it comes to transaction payments, you you charge a transaction fee every time someone makes a payment. But they are actually building a system where all the banks in the payment platform will pay um, a software as a service fee, will pay on an annual recurring basis. So the consumers transacting in that platform will likely be transacting for free or will likely be transacting at a much reduced cost because the banks are paying for it in a different way. And so that entire business model is just very disruptive. And and these are the things that I look for, because like I said, I think the challenge with a lot of companies is that transaction fee businesses are, depending on what you're doing, like peer-to-peer payments, for example, will become zero at some point. And so if people are building businesses where they're still thinking that this is going to be my bread and butter, that's a problem to me. How are you leveraging your platform in different ways to make money in different ways? It's going to become the number one thing that a lot of digital platforms have to deal with.
0: I'm sure that you have a lot of stories to share, and we're really interested in getting to a story, if you're able to share one, that you've learned over your career that's taught you about how entrepreneurs can build resilience into their business model.
2: For me, I think this crisis has taught everybody that we need to get back to basics. And getting back to basics, we have to step back a little bit and and find out why people don't go back to basics and why people don't typically build resilience in their businesses. I think a lot of it is ego. One of the key things, I look for people who are visionary. I look for people who are willing to disrupt themselves. I look for people who are innovative, not not just with technology, but with business models and obviously have the right skill sets. But on the flip side, I run away from people who have huge egos and i've become really woke with respect to just life in general and i believe everything is all about people's minds and people's perspectives in life their backgrounds and how they think about things and with everything i do whether it's negotiating deals whether it's partners whether it's friends i think when you look at a founder and you think about how people make a lot of mistakes a lot of it is to do with ego and i have examples of that specifically and i don't want to call people out
0: call people out not specifically but i'm sure like you're dealing with banking you're dealing with banking you're dealing with large personalities and in terms of large businesses give us an example
2: yeah i think an example of it is one of the key challenges of when you raise a ton of money i've been in many situations where lots of money has been raised and that's been the, the way of the world in the last 5 years thanks to all these wonderful organizations money becomes this thing that drives a lot of ego and it clouds your judgment in terms of why you're here in the first place. Like I said, I grew up learning that business for me was a social good. It was actually changing people's lives. It wasn't about an individual. It was about building something that was sustainable for all the stakeholders involved. And so for me, when I see people make decisions that are just really driven by their ego, In businesses, that's a problem. And one example of that is just a company has raised a lot of money. What is the natural reaction to do when you have a lot of ego is to go and continue to spend, to acquire lots of assets, to get into lots of product lines, get into a lot of countries and all of that, and not to think about unit economics and not to think about your cash flow and your financial situation and the viability and your capacity and whether or not you have product market fit in what you're actually going into. And that is a problem. And that is what gets you to a point where when you get into bad times, you're not resilient. You have not positioned your business in a way where you can be resilient. And a lot of that is because of ego. You're blindsiding yourself from really focusing on fundamentals. You're just focusing on all these superficial things. And we live in a world of superficial things. All that does is create this adverse goal of just focusing on growth and focusing on asset gathering versus focusing on fundamentals and, and, and actually delivering unit economics and profits and cash and being a viable entity. And so that, to me, is a really big issue. And we're in a generation of superficial behavior. Millennials and social media and everyone likes to feel very proud of themselves. And I think that sometimes clouds our judgment in making the right business decisions. This crisis has forced everybody to get back to basics and not just basics in terms of business model, but basics in terms of purpose. Why are you building this business in the first place? It has to be something beyond your personal egos. It has to be around something bigger, something for humanity. So when I see founders, I assess them in that way with respect to mind, body, and soul. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Because that's really what you're going to end up going back to when you have a crisis like this.
0: Okay. So one last question before Mark takes over is submitted from your co-founder, Rounak Jain. What is a common myth about investing in Africa or fintech that you can debunk for us?
2: So I think people think of fintech and they just think, oh, it's payments, it's apps that do digital lending and things like that. And for me, I think fintech goes beyond that. Fintech to me is everywhere. When the phrase software is everywhere was coined, I think the next five to 10 years is going to be about fintech is everywhere. That is truly what fintech is about. It's not a sector. It's a function that enables all sectors to be financially service enabled. Every sector has to leverage financial services. Every product and service, especially through digital platforms, have to have that financial services layer, that fintech layer. Just like you have the internet and connectivity and energy, every digital platform is going to have fintech in some way, shape, or form to really grow and to really be profitable. And I think Africa is just a hotbed for that because of the fact that Africa just fundamentally doesn't have the financial infrastructure that other continents have, whether it's no credit infrastructure, no identity infrastructure, low-income populations. The opportunity to build digital platforms that leverage fintech in some way, shape, or form to drive revenue and growth is a huge opportunity. And I think that is beyond mobile payments, mobile money, and, and digital banking, uh, lending apps. That's everything. That's everything that you're doing in terms of building a digital platform. How are you using the most important layer of the success of your platform, which is financial services? Mm.
1: And sort of building that resilience in the business and talking about what you need and what founders you are looking for and specifically debunking some of the issues around investing in Africa. You mentioned in times of crisis, ego is already a bad thing to have for founders or too much, but then in a time of crisis, it's compacted times 10, especially with the crisis we're going through right now with COVID-19. So what are some of the lessons that you could give entrepreneurs to think about when they're in a crisis, like the coronavirus crisis that may go on for longer than expected, where they can either navigate the crisis and come out stronger on the back half of the crisis, or maybe they need to cease operations. So how do you think about that?
2: It's a great point. I think, like I said, this crisis is just forcing everyone to get back to really their core. And and if that core is an ego-driven core problems, if that core is about what is my purpose here? Why am I doing this? Who am I serving? What do I want to get out of this? That's first and foremost, is really get to your core what you're about and what this is about. But I think there are a couple of things that are important here with respect to this crisis. One of the key things here is innovation, right? Companies right now should be looking at this as an opportunity to innovate and to pivot and to change and to think about what other things do they should be doing. I've seen a lot of companies in Africa right now that are doing so many different things that they would not have been thinking about doing before. Companies are getting into testing. Companies are getting into healthcare now. They're building apps where they can trace people. And they're bringing it into their business, into their the suites of products and services. Companies in financial services are now offering health insurance. They were just lenders before, and now they're getting into health insurance. So there's a lot of opportunities. So I think people need to get back, sit down and say, okay, what can we do to take advantage of this opportunity? We've gone through the crisis before. I went through 2009 crisis, and I saw all these opportunities that came out of it from a finance perspective, not from a tech perspective, Structuring and opportunities in real estate and all of that. I think in every crisis you have to look at the opportunities. And then the second thing I think is just, you have to go back into right-sizing your business. What can we do? What do we have product market fit around? What are our strengths? How can we hone in on that? And right-size our business to focus on that. This is not the time to start thinking of wide ideas, going into 500 different places and doing 500 different things. This is time to focus, on what you could do well and succeed on and bring that in from a financial perspective because that all leads to your financials how do we make sure that we have enough runway how do we make sure that whatever we're doing is profitable from a unit economic standpoint how do we make sure that we have enough capital to sustain ourselves for the next couple of years people are still under this mindset that this is a virus that's going to last for a month or so this is going to be trickling through for the next two years and we have to plan for that period So from a capital fundraising perspective, I've told people to really be opportunistic right now. If somebody is giving you capital on good terms, take it. This is not the time to be, oh, let's wait for another six months. Waiting is just a bad idea. It's time to act now. If there's opportunities in your presence, take those opportunities. Take those capital opportunities now. Because you just don't know what's going to happen in six months. We're in a very uncertain time. We can't even trust our leaders. We can't trust anything we watch in the news. It's time to just be smart. Take whatever capital you can get, right-size your business, and then look for opportunities in this type of market.
1: It's been a pleasure to have you with us today, Barbara, and we welcome you to join us again in the future when you're able to share some of your latest deals. And I'm sure you'll be making uh, big moves (laughs) and making a lot of news, as you always seem to do. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of me, Eric, and the crew at Venture the World, we thank you for being our guest today.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Janindu.
1: Great. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. To
0: find more episodes, visit VentureTheWorld.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at VTW underscore HQ. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review, which will help other listeners like you
2: venture the world. Thanks.